The Elon Musk founded company Neuralink is working on building brain implants that could someday provide a cure for illnesses like seizures, paralysis, and depression. But in order to make these implants available for wide release, there are some technical challenges and regulatory hurdles they'll have to overcome. Hi everyone, my name is Ryan Tanaka. Welcome to Neuropod, a channel about all things related to Neuralink. Here's Elon describing the implant device at the 2020 update presentation. Soon after, he goes on to discuss the team's status with getting FDA approval. And we're making good progress towards clinical studies. Um, I'm excited to announce that we received a, a breakthrough device designation from the FDA in July, uh, thanks to the hard work of the Neuralink team. So. So I want to be clear, we're working closely with the FDA um, and we'll, um, we'll be extremely rigorous. In fact, we will, um, we will significantly, significantly exceed the minimum FDA guidelines for uh, safety. We will make this uh, as safe as possible. Um, you know, just as with, with Tesla, while it is legally possible to ship a one-star car, at Tesla, we, the only cars we make are five stars in, in every category. Uh, so... Uh, we, we actually maximize safety and we'll take the same approach here at Neuralink. He continues on about the boring details of the Breakthrough Device program. We read the articles and watched the videos to share the summary version. Neuralink was able to receive Breakthrough Device designation status because they're working on a device that could have a significant positive impact on public health. The brain-machine interface implant will first be used to help patients who are paralyzed be able to regain control of a computer keyboard and mouse. Specifically, you do not have to have some amazing new technology to be designated as breakthrough. Rather, the device can be a breakthrough if it could have a breakthrough impact on public health. Additionally, you must specify a patient population that has a life-threatening or irreversibly debilitating condition. This patient population needs to be specified in the indication for use statement. In the case of Neuralink, Elon and the team have consistently stated the initial patient population the device will be useful for are paralyzed patients. On the Neuralink website, they state, we expect our first application to be computer control for people with spinal cord injury. There are many other potential future applications for the link. These include restoring motor and sensory function and the treatment of neurological disorders. This is consistent with what head neurosurgeon at Neuralink, Dr. Matt McDougall, shared during the 2020 update presentation. So our, our first clinical trial is aimed at uh, people with paraplegia or, or tetraplegia, uh, so cervical spinal cord injury, we're going to enroll, uh, we're planning to enroll a small number of patients uh, to make sure the device is safe and that it works in that case. Similarly, Elon stated this in a Wall Street Journal interview just a couple months ago. So Neuralink, we, um, we, we have uh, Neuralink's working well in, um, in monkeys um, and we were also doing um, just a, a lot of testing um, and, and just confirming that it's, it's very safe and reliable and, uh, and that it, the, the Neuralink device can be removed safely. Um, people may have seen the uh, demo that we, we, we published uh, earlier this year, the video of a monkey playing uh, the video game Pong uh, telepathically using the Neuralink in its, in its, uh, in its, in its brain. Um, and, uh, it's completely wireless, uh, charges inductively. But basically, the monkey looks completely normal and yet is playing a video game telepathically, um, which is, I think, quite, quite profound. Um, we will have, uh, we, we hope to have this in our first humans, which will be uh, people that have um, severe spinal cord injuries, like 
tetraplegics, quadriplegics uh, next year, uh, pending uh, FDA approval. The desire to help people is an ongoing thread that runs through what Elon and the Neuralink team continue to work on. This tweet from Elon about a year ago demonstrates the company's motivation to begin human trials as early as possible. It reads, Neuralink is working super hard to ensure implant safety and is in close communication with the FDA. If things go well, we might be able to do initial human trials later this year. The United States Food and Drug Administration is part of the Department of Health and Human Services. The FDA is responsible for helping to speed innovations that make medical products more effective, safer, and more affordable. They have practices in place to test and verify the safety of medical devices. Since Neuralink is developing an invasive, surgically implanted device, the regulatory process is more stringent than with other less risky devices. The FDA sorts medical devices into three classes, class one, class two, and class three. Class one devices are considered the least risky and present minimal potential for harm. Class two devices are considered to have moderate risk and class three devices have the highest risk as they're built to sustain or support life or implanted. Based on my current understanding, I believe Neuralink's robot, link, and future devices will fall into the class three and class two device categories. For reference, some class three device examples are heart valves, cochlear implants, pacemakers, breast implants, and high frequency ventilators. Class two device examples are things like catheters or contact lenses. Fortunately, this process and these brain implant devices are not entirely new for the FDA. At the end of March 2021, researchers at BrainGate claimed to demonstrate the first human use of a high-bandwidth wireless brain-computer interface. The article reads, For the first time, BrainGate clinical trial participants with tetraplegia have demonstrated use of an intracortical wireless BCI with an external wireless transmitter. The system is capable of transmitting brain signals at single neuron resolution and in full broadband fidelity without physically tethering the user to a decoding system. The traditional cables are replaced by a small transmitter about 2 inches in its largest dimension and weighing a little over 1.5 ounces. The unit sits on top of a user's head and connects to an electrode array within the brain's motor cortex using the same port used by wired systems. Since the BrainGate research team shares knowledge with a few companies including Neuralink and they've already gone through much of the clinical trial process, I would expect Neuralink will be able to progress through the initial phases of the trial relatively quickly. So uh, you may have seen the initial uh, disclosure side that uh, Mass General has a clinical research support agreement with uh, three companies that are, rel that are uh, relevant uh, in this space, if not more, uh, which includes Neuralink, as you just mentioned, Paradromics and Synchron. The, uh, so I'm uh, very fortunate to have the opportunity to interact with them every so often through the hospital because what we're learning in our BrainGate research, I, I want them to know. In addition to the prior trials from other groups looked at by the FDA, Neuralink itself has already demonstrated a working wireless brain-machine interface in a monkey. In this clip, Stanford professor Paul Nuyajikin explains the significance of the Neuralink monkey demonstration, where the monkey played the video game Pong telepathically. This is Pager. He's a nine-year-old monkey who had a Neuralink placed in each side of his brain about six weeks ago. If you look carefully, you can see that the fur on his head hasn't quite fully grown back yet. Okay, so right out of the gate, there's already a lot being communicated here. Um, 
what you're seeing is a rhesus macaque monkey, which is a very common animal model in the field. It's the same monkey that I work with uh, in our research group um, for our animal studies. It's got you know, 100 plus years of history uh, that has contributed to systems neuroscience, and much of what we know about the brain is because of the rhesus macaque. Like Professor Nuyijikin said, it would be practically impossible to tell the monkey had two Neuralink implants. Furthermore, most of this type of work requires a wired connection that's visible outside the brain. The little piece they were talking about, about the shared, uh, the shaved piece of head, that's that little bald patch you're seeing on the top of the head. Um, and that's because when they did surgery, they shaved off the, all of the thick fur so they could get access to the, to the scalp um, and then implant, do the implantation. Now, one of the things that's very interesting about this is that had you not told me that 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 was that it was shaven for the purposes of an implant, I would have never been able to tell. Uh, the vast majority of this type of work is using wired implants that have external connectors. So there's hardware that's visible from the outside. Uh, and here you're seeing for the first time, um, you know, high channel count implants that are fully implantable that are basically invisible. So once this hair grows back, I wouldn't be even be able to tell you that the animal had a surgery. And that's sort of a, an important consideration from a cosmetic perspective. If this is ever to, to if these devices are ever to make it to be white, to, you know, to be accepted um, by, by people for, for, uh, for therapeutic use. What's the difference between Neuralink doing this in a monkey versus in a human in this context? I predict the team's been working to continuously reiterate and improve all aspects of the surgical robot, implant, and decoder. The core devices should remain the same. As such, this regulatory FDA process should not be considered all that scary. Instead, I encourage folks to acknowledge where Neuralink fits into the larger field of brain-machine interfaces. It's currently most appropriate to just give them credit with drawing more attention to the industry. Additionally, over time, I expect they'll pioneer new levels of performance and widespread implantation that we've never seen before. We're going to use a robot with a laser beam to slice part of your cornea. Imagine hearing that line in the 1970s. How many of your parents would have squirmed and said, absolutely not, I'm never doing that. You can't make me no matter what. I did a quick Google search and found that more than 10 million people in the United States alone have gotten the laser eye surgery. My mom is one of those 10 million, and although her eyes are a little more sensitive to light than they used to be, she's happy she got the procedure done. I say this to demonstrate one example proving the net effect of LASIK existing is positive. Although there are many people today who are proclaiming they'll never get a Neuralink implant, I suspect if we fast forward a couple decades, many of those same people will change their minds. He also discusses the long-term cost of a Neuralink surgery should come down to a similar cost as LASIK eye surgery. And I, I think that's possible. I think it should be possible to get it similar to um, LASIK and, and then the uh, device electronics itself, um, I think will, will not be very expensive. Um, because it actually does, does use a lot of the parts that are made in extremely high volume in tens of millions of, of units uh, for uh, smartphones and, and smartwatches and wearables in general. Going back to the regulatory requirements, the FDA only regulates the manufacture and sale of medical devices. It can't regulate the practice of medicine or the surgery, nor can it regulate other aspects of devices such as the cost. For example, with LASIK, the FDA can only regulate components of a LASIK device such as the lasers, but it can't control how the procedure is done on an individual, nor can it control the doctors that are performing the procedure. Likewise, the FDA can't actually regulate the procedures of the Neuralink surgical robot, 
nor can it regulate other factors such as its operation. I suppose this is a good or bad thing depending on your viewpoint, but a device that gets implanted in your head that can read and write to your brain will eventually also have to deal with tough criticism from society. Like I said before, one of the key parts of the FDA mission is to speed innovations that make medical products more effective, safer, and more affordable. However, it's conceivable that a single injury could slow down the pace of development simply due to social pressure. This is a clip of Tim Marginen talking on the Neural Implant Podcast. Tim previously worked for the FDA for more than 16 years in the Neurostimulation Devices team. And just to summarize, how many people are involved in this whole process? Is the weight of millions of people's lives resting on one shoulder, one person's shoulders, or is it more like a committee? It dep- again, it depends on the device, it depends on, on the type of submission. So if it's a 510K for a TENS device, for instance, it might only be one person one leader viewer, and then you have the assistant director who is the, the first line supervisor. They're, they're looking at it from a management perspective. If it's something like an IDE, for instance, then you're going to have the leader reviewer. If it's for, and it, let's say it's for a pivotal study. So you're going to have the leader reviewer, you're going to have a clinician, you're going to have a statistician as that's the core review team. And then once it goes up through the chain, it's going to go to the assistant director first, and then the division director is going to have, and in most cases, then that final level of sign-off. So that'll be the signature block. For things like de novos or PMAs, it'll, it'll go one level higher up to the, the Office of Health Technology Director. So it, it really does depend on what the submission is. The clinical trial journey includes four phases. Phase one, where the researchers begin looking for answers with the help of volunteers. Researchers answer questions about safety and how well participants tolerate the medical intervention. This phase usually lasts a few months long with around 10 trial participants. Phase two is where the researchers ask, is what I'm studying effective for patients with this health condition? Are there side effects? What's the comparison to a placebo? This phase can last several months to years. Often funding disappears or results are inconclusive after phases one and two. However, if it works, then they move on to phase three. And that's where they confirm the results of previous trials in a larger study. How does it compare to other treatments? How effective is it with a lot more people? This phase usually takes years to complete. And after phase three, the FDA reviews all trial data. They determine if the benefits outweigh the risk. If it gets approved, it's ready to become a treatment for patients. Lastly, as the implant becomes more widely used, there will be ongoing monitoring to ensure effectiveness and continued safety. As you can see from this chart, the controls implemented by the FDA for class three devices are general controls and pre-market approval. The general controls include things like making sure the implant device is appropriately labeled, any device related injuries or deaths are reported, and the Neuralink business is registered with the FDA. All devices used are identified. The quality of the devices are shown to be safe and effective finished devices. And furthermore, regulation is in place to make sure there is no adulteration nor misleading labeling. Let's hear what this member of the FDA says about what's actually required to take a new product to market. Now that we have some background, let's see if we can put some of this together so we can figure out how to get your new medical device to market. Over the next few slides, I've outlined five steps that you can generally follow. 
First, he discusses the necessity to identify the high-level summary of what the device is and how, when, and who the device will be used for. Step two is just verifying the medical device is indeed a medical device. Step three is determining whether the device is a class one, class two, or three device. And step four is prove the device is safe and effective with scientific evidence. Preclinical, animal, and clinical testing constitutes this evidence. Then step five is preparation of the pre-market submission. Let's take a closer look at the different types of pre-market submissions that you may submit. Five of the most common types of submissions are investigational device exemption, pre-market notification, pre-market approval application, de novo, or humanitarian device exemption. Of the five pre-market submission types here, it appears Neuralink will first be working on an investigational device exemption. This is aligned with what we covered on Neuropod back in June 2021. In this clip, we share that Neuralink was looking to find an experienced regulatory affairs individual to write the IDE. It looks like the team is hiring a regulatory affairs expert. The description for this position says, quote, NTX Services brings you an exclusive opportunity to work with Neuralink on their regulatory affairs team reporting directly to Dr. McDougall, head neurosurgeon. We are looking for an experienced regulatory affairs individual to write the IDE for Neuralink for around 15 hours per week. This position could transition into a full-time role as a clinical trials coordinator in two to three months, unquote. The IDE they're referring to is the Investigational Device Exemption with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. This position aligns well with what we've been hearing before about the timeline for FDA approval for human trials being at the end of this year or early 2022. When looking at the FDA website for investigational device exemption, there are numerous requirements and a very thorough review, as we might expect. This should further serve as proof that the Neuralink N1 implant will be safe. Given the fact that this position is still open, it will probably be several months before they hire the person, write the IDE, and get it approved. Now let's learn what the IDE entails. Of the five we'll review, this is the one submission where you are not asking to get your product to market. Instead, this is the submission where you are asking for FDA approval to conduct clinical research on your investigational device. In an IDE, you're collecting clinical safety and effectiveness evidence as part of your overall valid scientific evidence that you plan to include in a future marketing application. Clinical studies will typically require FDA approval as well as approval by an institutional review board with the goal of protecting the safety of patients as much as possible during the research being proposed. Once the Neuralink team has been able to conduct human clinical trials, they'll likely have to submit a pre-market approval application. Another type of submission is the pre-market approval application or PMA. PMA is a marketing application for high-risk devices. These are ones that are class three, as well as devices without an existing classification. In a PMA, a device must demonstrate a reasonable assurance of safety and effectiveness. In contrast to the 510K, PMA evidence must stand on its own. It is not an equivalence evaluation to another legally marketed device. These steps are supported by the clinical trial director job posting currently shown on the Neuralink website. 
Neuralink is often praised for pioneering this game-changing new technology. However, many of the concepts they're using have already been studied and experimented on for decades. This timeline shows some of the key moments for neural interface research throughout history. Given this history, the recent BrainGate clinical trials doing the same thing that Neuralink wants to do, and the successful Neuralink monkey trials, I think it's unlikely Neuralink won't make it past phase two of the clinical trials. Stated otherwise, Neuralink continues to have a good chance of making progress through these trials during this decade. That being said, they have a long road ahead to truly getting these devices out for widespread implantation into healthy humans. How long, you ask? Let's hear what project director at Neuralink, Siobhan Zillis, had to say. If you were looking for something that, again, just unequivocally is going to take you to better control like, of your computers and your digital devices and be your default way of interacting, you're, you're probably looking at 12 to 15 years. Um, again, pending FDA cycles and various other things like that. But if you're looking for something, I, I, have, a, I have a sneaking hypothesis that some of the, the deeper brain implants will be desired by relatively healthy pe people on a shorter time scale. Um, but again, on the earliest, you're looking at seven to 10 years plus whatever additional regulatory cycle is required to make it just like universally available. But I think the existence proof will exist in seven to 10 years. Thanks for watching. My name is Ryan Tanaka. Please consider liking the video, subscribing, and even supporting by joining the channel or supporting on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Thanks again.